Welcome to the Vets First podcast, a research-based conversation centered around the VA healthcare system, its services, and patients. From Iowa City, Iowa, here's your hosts, Dr. Levi Sowers and Brandon Ray. Welcome back to the Vets First podcast. As always, I have Brandon Ray. Hello, everyone. Uh, today, we have Dr. Lena Kubli, the Scientific Program Manager for the Office of Research and Development. Um, her focus is uh, sensory systems and communication disorders. And uh, we're really lucky to have you here. Dr. Kubli, welcome to the Vets First podcast. Thank you. Hello, everyone. You know, I think my, my first question that we typically ask people, and I, I like to ask is, where do you come from? How did you end up uh, as a scientific program officer? Uh, for the VA? So like some people, I didn't have a direct path to audiology and to becoming a scientific program manager at the VA. I knew that I wanted to work with people. I had um, thought about medical school, but really didn't think that I had a wanted to spend the time going through that kind of training, little did I know. And then B, I honestly didn't even know that I could do it. I was beginning to doubt whether I had what it took to go through that long of a training. And looking back, it was kind of silly that I didn't pursue it. My dad really wanted me to go to medical school, but I knew that I wanted to do something with patient care and something in science. And I was really intrigued by not the things that were known and and applying them, but more about the questions that were unanswered. Yeah, sure. And so, where where did you where did you grow up at? Where did you go to high school? Oh, where did I go to high school? I went to oh. Wooten High School in Maryland. So in Maryland. I, I yeah. So yeah. You're an East Coast I, person. You, you, grew up in the East, you grew up in the East Coast. I grew up in the East Coast. Never really left the area. Yeah, I, but I did, um, I was born in India and I spent oh. the first seven years of my life in India. Oh, wow. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. So did, uh, where'd you go to college? I went to University of Maryland first and Big started out in biochemistry. And then at some point I decided I was an absolute disaster in the labs. I was not, I love the classroom <laughs> setting, but I completely was just not, a lab person and I knew that I had to do something where I was interacting more with people. And so I switched majors and I ended up in hearing and speech as an undergrad, just towards the last year and a half of finishing a degree and um, decided I liked it, but I didn't really wanna do clinical, just clinical work. I knew that I would, if I did something, it would be related to research. And so uh, for your PhD, did you also stay at Maryland? I did. I did. Well, at that, at that point, I had a family. I had, um, I went back to get my master's degree. Yeah. And once I finished my master's, I was actually working at Walter Reed uh, Army Medical Center at the time. And I was in, I was recruited to working on a fantastic research project, which, by the way, was funded by the VA. So it was a DOD VA funded project. Mm-hmm. And all of the service members that were tested, that were returning from deployment, were tested at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. So this was around 2007, 2008. And um, at that time, 
I um, was considering going back for a PhD, but I didn't want to quit my job because it was such a fantastic project that I was really enthusiastic about. So the director of the clinic said to me, why do you have to quit? Can't you find a program that can accommodate your schedule? You know, and I thought, how am I going to do this? I have, I had two kids at the time and I, I found two options. One was University of Maryland. I didn't want to move away because I liked the job I was in. And then the second option was working at Gallaudet University. And that kind of intrigued me because I'd never worked with a completely deaf population. I didn't know what that environment was like, and I thought that would be good exposure. Plus, Gallaudet was really willing to be flexible. University of Maryland would have wanted me to quit my job to be full-time committed, um, not only in the program, but also to help out in the labs. Yeah. And I knew that I couldn't afford to do that. So I, I ended up taking the um, opportunity to study at Gallaudet, which was really interesting. And I worked my job and then I would leave to go to classes in the evening. So for a couple of years, it was kind of crazy because I was working with two, kids, two full-time with two kids. With two kids, right. So really, you, kids had like three, you had like three full-time jobs. Really? Yes, you're yeah, right. That's impressive. Yeah, that's crazy. I, well, I, uh, I have one child and <laughs> I feel overwhelmed by that. So I can't imagine going to school and having a child and working. That's crazy. Well, cool. You know what, it, I think if you have a supportive family, and, and it, my daughter was great, she was, she was really, at one point I said to her, do you, you know, I could quit, because all these um, neighbors and friends, they were mostly stay-at-home moms, and she said to me, that would be embarrassing, mom, and I said, that would be embarrassing to you, and she goes, yeah, because you work with service members, and I'm proud of what you do. Oh, and that's cool. Yeah, so it was really, she was my biggest super supporter, cute. and yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Good words of encouragement from your, your tiny human. Yeah. I, I get those once in a while, and it's nice to have. Oh, that's fantastic. That's really yeah. good. You know, you know, so I, I think the first question is, what is a scientific program manager? Um, you know, the VA has this Office of Research and Development, which is split into four main branches, I believe. And there's uh, those four main pillars of, of VA research, at least for now. You're in part of one called Rehabilitation Research and Development. And it is split up into a little bit further groups. And you're one of the people that sort of filter, I believe, filter grants that come into the VA or, or award um, mm -hmm. calls for funding, if you will. That's what we call them in our world. And so can you tell me a little bit about what you do and what your role is at the VA? Sure. So as a scientific program manager, I oversee the program within Rehabilitation Research and Development Service, as you mentioned. The um, it, applications that come in a broad range of topics that include vision, hearing, vestibular research, and they could be speech and communication sciences. So uh, people that may have stroke and need rehabilitation or projects that are related to traumatic brain injury and multiple sensory issues that can occur afterwards. And so as a scientific program manager, I evaluate the letters of intent that come in from different investigators throughout the VA and see if it's appropriate because we have four services that fund research. So some projects are a little more basic. The VA funds research, anything from basic 
to health services where we're really looking at healthcare delivery types of questions. And so my job is to look to see if the applications are appropriate and then oversee, even though I don't really interfere with the meetings, try to, I will recruit all the uh, scientific panel members that are needed to evaluate the applications that, because they have to have an expertise in a particular area. So if a, a, an application comes in glaucoma related and it might be looking at AI, for example, it would be finding those reviewers that have knowledge of those areas and then come putting together a panel of experts that can evaluate the applications. And then once they come in, then listening to that and then based on the scores that, that the applications may get, making recommendations for what is needed for veteran care and what is ready to move forward. Um, when you get someone to review a uh, an award application or a grant application. Um, I think they're technically called awards at the VA because they're internal awards. Do you re recruit only scientists or people, experts really in the field from within the VA or do you look outside the VA too? That's a great question, Levi. Um, I look for people, they have to be either um, wanting to work at the VA. So they, they would have a letter that's a requirement because it's an intramural funding resource. Congress appropriates this for people within the VA, but they could be at universities. And if, as long as they have an agreement with the, with the VA office that they want to work at, that they can submit that proposal, mm -hmm. then if it should be funded, they can then uh, be, be part of the VA. And, and work on that project. So it really requires a person who's interested to go to their local VA medical center and make that arrangement. But I also do recruit people in areas where we have gaps. So for example, low vision research in the vision area, we don't have a lot of submissions in that. And so I've actually gone out and talked to different people and gotten them to submit applications for cochlear implants is another area where I do a lot of recruiting and getting people interested in applying to the VA. And we do have a lot of new investigators that have never submitted to the VA before because they have an expertise and we are lacking in that expertise. And how many applicants do you get in a typical cycle? Yeah, our panel is pretty small, probably about 20 applications, 16 to 20. So it's really not that many. And it again, it depends on what stage the application is in. So if they're asking a lot of mechanistic questions, meaning they're really looking at more basic science-related questions, it would go to another, another uh, service that can fund it. So some applications are turned away because they don't really meet, meet the criteria of rehabilitation research. I see. Um, when a grant does come in, it gets reviewed by usually three people, right? Yes. Um, you talked about that a little bit earlier. So when you put those people together, are those people within the VA too? Are they VA researchers? Are they also from outside the VA? Most of the panel members are outside the VA. Our, we are required for our FACA members, which is the Federal Advisory Committee members, 70% to 80% of them should be outside of the VA. 
So we try, most of them are affiliated with universities. There are many that have never applied to the VA and don't may have NIH funding or funding from other federal agencies. So we really, we've tried to get a mixture. We don't want all VA, but we certainly want some input from VA because they would understand some of the complexities of, you know, navigating issues that may occur when you are trying to implement a project in the VA. Yeah, um, that's, that's some good insight there about sort of the process of how a VA investigator like me would uh, submit a grant or an award application and it gets reviewed by a panel. Um, and you usually get three tries at that, right? Um, as, a, right. as an investigator. It depends on the kind of application that's submitted. So it's we've got many different types of awards. We have what NIH, which what is similar to an NIH award, it's called a merit application. We also have small projects in rehabilitation research. So different services may offer different types of awards. For the merit award, you do get three submissions. Excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm not sure why the phone is <laughs> That's okay. We've to... gotten so used to dogs barking. Oh and yeah, we've had children yeah. screaming and it's it's crazy. Yeah. We, we've done a few of these for a lot of people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a candid experience, that's, yeah. for, that's for certain. Yeah, I was thinking about, so you're talking about uh, certain areas of research that you're kind of recruiting for, like asking for applications. Um, can you highlight that again or highlight more on that? Like which areas are you most excited to kind of expand upon in terms of research? Yeah, I, I think there are a lot of projects that have been put forth that I'm really excited about. It's, it's the diagnostic piece, trying to evaluate injury when there is no diagnosis currently or trying to evaluate injury before it becomes something like a vision loss or hearing loss. So the diagnostic piece really is exciting or use of artificial intelligence to try to figure out um, through many different algorithms, you know, how we can best diagnose different types of issues that can happen uh, without using, without taking too long and trying to, you know, use telemedicine as much as possible for those patients that may have long commutes. So uh, I think some of those areas are really exciting. So the diagnosis piece, I know with the hearing um, program that that is uh, an important element and the same thing with the vision program. Then of course the treatment part is really important. Um, trying to move things from animal studies to eventually where it can make an impact on veteran care. I think that is so important because as we evaluate research, there are times when things are funded for over 20 years, but they, they may or may not you know, make an impact. And so it's, it's really the impactful research. And VA has a good track record of lots of projects like tinnitus research that's been very impactful and has made a big difference in veteran healthcare. And not only in veteran health healthcare, but it's also the tinnitus, the progressive tinnitus management program that was developed at the VA is also used in the civilian sector. It's used on the DOD side. And so those kinds of projects that translate to patient care are the ones that are the most exciting. But I know that there are different stages of research. Not everything can be immediately ready for that type of translation. Yeah, I think what you're really highlighting is what at least I refer to as translational research. 
So things that can uh, be impactful in five to 10 years in a veteran, right? So, you know, I study animals, but the work that we do can directly influence uh, the way clinicians think about disease, in this case, diagnostics or uh, treatment, right? And so I think that the VA has really made a huge focus on translational research and how can we directly benefit the veterans and in a shorter time period to improve their lives and outcomes of their lives, you know, comorbidities um, and things like that, I think is sort of the focus that I've yes. seen come to fruition in the past you know, decade or so uh, that I've been here. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty cool to see. I think you know, the VA, a lot of people don't understand that VA research has had some really groundbreaking discoveries in the past. And I think um, moving towards that again is, is something that they're really focusing on, which is kind of neat to see. So another question I want to ask is, you know, this is a season that we've done on blind veterans. Um, what are some of the biggest research focus areas you think are important for vision loss in veterans? I think that uh, what chronic for chronic related conditions that could happen with veterans trying to find therapeutics or rehabilitation approaches that can make an impact on their daily life and you know functional ability so it's really about looking at the person overall and some of the challenges that they may face and it's not just vision loss many veterans have hearing loss so when you talk about dual sensory issues, very hard to address. I understand that it's not easy, but having seen service members on the Walter Reed Army side, and then also Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, I can tell you from the people that I've evaluated, they are very complex. It's not so easy. And many of them have similarities in the kinds of symptoms that they report in the visual domain as they do in the auditory domain. And so I often wonder if it's a sensory issue in general or how, or perhaps multiple areas are affected because of the kind of combat exposures that veterans have. And it's really looking at whole health again. And that's hard to do for investigators who are focused in a specific area, but it, it is very important because they can go to one provider and talk about vision, kinds of issues and, and they may get an evaluation and told they're fine. And then they come to another provider and now they're having to report their case history again. And, and they may talk about the same things in the hearing domain, but if there's a multidisciplinary team approach, then it's really difficult to address all of the needs of a veteran. Yeah, of course. You know, and, and, and I think that the whole idea that, you know, one of the big focuses of this season is going to be on TBI related vision problems. Mm -hmm. and what that looks like. Well, the reality is that it looks like a whole gamish of things. There's, mm -hmm. there's all these problems that come along with TBI. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, uh, some, in, in that are, some, yeah. some that are from the onset, some that develop over time. And, like, and you know, long-term pain, headaches, vision loss, you know, the, this idea that, that you have overall sensory abnormalities is something that I've really um, taking a liking to in my research, that it's, it's these dis, this dysregulation of sensory input on multiple fronts because um, that's how we perceive our world, right? And when that goes haywire, it can be really Absolutely. bad for some people. And uh, yeah. you know, that's become a big focus of what we work on, not just migraine per se, but sensory processing. 
Mm-hmm. And sensory integration. So one of my first jobs actually a long time ago that led me to being really interested in this area was working with a group of children who had um, speech and language as their main issue was level four classroom. And this was when I was had just finished my undergraduate degree and I was trying to figure out what to do in terms of graduate school. And I was interested in speech pathology. But I worked with this, this in this classroom with kids who had traumatic brain injury. Some of them had uh, the mothers who were cocaine addicts. Some of the kids in the classroom had undiagnosed related issues, but they all had a common element. They had difficulty with both auditory and visual processing, which was interesting. They had severely delayed language and um, lots of neurological issues. So they had difficulty with motor coordination. And the school was really focused on a multi disciplinary approach of doing uh, PT, OT, um, all kinds of services. But it was really intriguing for me to see how much progress they made in the few months that I was there. I took on another job, but while I was there, it was it, it was really it was fascinating to me how much if a brain is affected in one domain, how much another part can take over. And I I know that um, it's hard to cite examples, but we had a child who was born with a cocaine addiction, and these are toddlers, I'm talking about three years old, and she would have these withdrawal fits, even after three years of being born with an addiction, and had a real disconnect with people, and so to see that kind of progress over time, leading to what happens with service members, so getting back to adults, the same kind of um, thing was true with service members that we saw at Walter Reed that had multiple issues. They could have vision loss, hearing loss, and even motor loss. And through repeated therapy that sometimes you go as a provider, is this really going to work? It was amazing to see that after six or eight months, they could regain their use of hand function where they had lost it completely. And so it's it's those types of um, th- those types of strides that they can only make through that uh, a multidisciplinary approach. Did I go off on a tangent on you? No, that was, <laughs> no, no, that was great. That was a really great answer. I think um, we're getting to be towards our limit of time, but we have a time for a couple more questions, I mm-hmm. think. Um, is there anything you want to talk about? That, that you think is important to talk about today? Well, I wanted to just highlight that the VA is focused on making improvements in veteran care. And that's yeah. the ultimate goal for the research. It's very unique from other funding agencies, not to say that the other funding agencies, they have concerns about patient care, but the VA is really invested in three goals. One is to make sure that the innovations that we come up with make an impact on healthcare. The second piece is to train VA um, clinician scientists and researchers to take on some of those tasks. So it's the career development piece that's really important. And the, the third is really to make sure that whatever we do ultimately is veteran-centric. And so we want our veterans to get the best care. And I I think the message would be, even for veterans who are out there and feeling kind of lost, whether it be clinical care or research, know that there are opportunities that 
there's always someone available to reach out to. And I can say this from the service members that I've seen at Walter Reed, sometimes it feels like you could be lost in a big system, but trust me, there are providers who are there with the VA because they are so concerned about veteran care and because they feel that this is their duty to help the VA. And so if you find that you're running into a roadblock in one domain, please go back and talk to somebody else because there's always someone there that is willing to invest the time to help guide you. Of course. Yeah, I think that's a good message. And um, that sort of plays into what we've seen this season, mm -hmm. right, which is reaching out yep. um, uh, these veterans who go from fully, you know, fully functional vision to no vision, right, Brandon, mm -hmm. like these, these people. Um, well, they they really highlighted how, I mean, initially you kind of feel alone and where, where do you go from now? And like, I think a common theme we're hearing is how they make these connections, how they realize they're not alone, how there's a community of other veterans who've experienced similar things that they have and how that's improved their lives. And that's a lot of that's through the VA. Yeah, we've had a lot of good feedback about that and reaching out for help and the blind um, uh, rehabilitation centers of have been a really big deal for them mm -hmm. uh, as well. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff out there for people who lose their sight, especially veterans. And uh, I think that, that, you know, it's just a phone call away oftentimes for, for veterans who need help with hearing loss or vision loss or, um, or even other issues. Like yeah. I, I know that there's, there are times when all of it can be, um, can, can be a lot to deal with. So there are, you know, lack of sleep, there are uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, there can be a multitude of symptoms. And I think it's just a matter of reaching out to providers and making sure that that communication avenue is kept open. And really, we're very appreciative of veterans who come in, who volunteer their time for all of these research studies. I can say at uh, Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and Walter Reed Army Medical Center, we were seeing people that were severe, they had serious bodily injuries. I mean, I'm talking about people who are going through limb amputations and all kinds of surgeries, and yet they were volunteering for research studies. Yeah. And it just, I mean, it speaks so much to the kind of dedication that veterans have and service members have. And we appreciate that. I think all of us appreciate that so yeah. much because we are looking very hard to find those solutions that can really benefit healthcare for them in the long run. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Awesome. That's a, that's a really good point. Um, now we get to the more fun, not that that wasn't fun. <laughs> of the okay. First off, is this your first podcast? It is. Oh, well, that's exciting. So um, everybody. Well, I mean, I've done, I've done other interviews on like XM radio, but that was a long oh, time ago. Yeah. That's cool. Ooh, nice. Um, and now you have just two guys, two guys on a zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not XM radio. Great. I like these two guys on the zoom call. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, one thing I always ask people is, uh, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? So, um, I had one, who was it the other day that was like work? And I'm like, no, it has to be something yeah, other than that. Darn, they took them. my answer. No, 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 no. What do you like to do outside of work for fun? Yeah. Oh, I love to, let's see, what, what do I like to do? I love to travel. 
I've not been able to travel in the last couple of years, but I love to travel. I love to go to other parts of the world and and this country. There's a lot of the U.S. that I haven't seen that I've, I've got a list of places that I'd like to go to. I'm like, sure Iowa's on there as a hotspot. Oh, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Iowa is really interesting. I went to Iowa once, and I, yeah, I, I liked it. It's really low key, and people are very friendly. And um, I was warned that it would be super cold. And honestly, I think because I braced myself for the cold, I loved it. I loved <laughs> well, getting yeah, my face frozen the whole bit. You know, yeah, you were hot. here during the winter. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was pretty good. Yeah, um, and I, I like um, I like working out. So I I, like, I enjoy physical activity, lots of different types of challenges. I get really bored if I'm doing the same kind of thing um, for too long, but I, I like weightlifting, running. I don't love running, but I run. And uh, swimming, yoga. So I think that it really brings about the mind and body connection. And so that's what I, I enjoy. I'm allergic to running. So, I, like <laughs> I think I, like I was too when I started. I mean, honestly, it's like one of the hardest things anyone can do. <laughs> I like. I was like running when I was like in a sport, like I'm running to like uh, tackle somebody, or I'm running like in anticipation for like a like wrestling meet or something. When I'm running just for the sake of running, I don't know. I just get kind of bored. I'm like, <laughs> especially on a treadmill. It's so true. I mean, my first run was down this road called Pikes Peak, but it wasn't Colorado or anything that adventurous. It was just a straight run. And I remember <laughs> there was a 90-year-old man who was speed walking faster than I could run. <laughs> yes. And my goal at the end of the race was to beat that guy, and I did. <laughs> but only barely. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Well, you know, I, I think it's it, it's interesting to talk to you about today because, um, you know, as a researcher, we put all the program officers on like, or I call you a program officer, program managers in this case, on a pedestal, right? You're sort of these people who are like overlords to us. And we, it, it, I know you shake your head no, but that's like how it looks like or feels like to us. So, you know, it's interesting to sit here and talk to you and get to know you a little more. And, and uh, you know, it, there's so many different ways to serve our country and you're doing that well so awesome thank you for that and and, and our thank veterans you. and um i'd love to have you on again so the that's another thing is like finding all this information to put into a podcast is difficult so having yeah. you on again someday would be really cool yeah so yeah no i'm uh, happy to do that i just want it to be useful for your audience that's what oh I'm you're doing. definitely, definitely digestible chunk. yes i think there's so many interesting things from walter reed um meaning that the <laughs> So I could go on about this, but I just, I, I actually hope that I highlight it. And I'll tell you this, that people, there are times when people can run into the most difficult of circumstances. And I've seen this with service members and that's, and I, and there are people that they run into, they, they may not even realize it makes a difference, but it can make a big difference in terms of even suicide prevention. Oh yeah. Uh, there are, yeah, they're, they're, I, yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting you say that. Uh, we, you know, in a few of our interviews that we've done, um, Doug Lanfear on the first season. Yeah, Doug you know, was, Doug was uh, not in a good place and he was calling in to cancel a, a dentist appointment that he had. And the 
person on the other end of the line could sense and could tell that something was off. And Doug attributes his life to uh, that person on the other end of the phone helping him out. Yeah, that uh, random receptionist that he never met. Yeah, because he, he was having thoughts of suicide at the time. Yeah, and I can, I can relate to that. I had somebody volunteer for a research study and I happened to call at the end of the day and I thought I will, this, this person had just stopped into the clinic and gave her name and I called her and she's like, no, I'm not interested. But there's something about her voice that triggered, let me talk to her. Well, how are your services? You know, and I started speaking to her more and the more I talked to her, I realized she said, look, I have a, bag of pills and I'm just going to take them right now. And I'm going, okay, can't get her. And I, I was using my cell phone while I'm using my landline, my office phone to keep her going and tried to identify where she was at and what unit could respond. And even on our website at that point, we didn't even have the suicide information readily available. So I'm calling, I called the, the police on, on at the Walter Reed base and they found her unit and eventually, but I kept her talking for an hour and they got to her on time. So it just yeah. it's like, yeah, but it doesn't always happen, you know? So it's, no, no, it's really important, I think, when people feel that desperate that they, no matter who you reach out to, it can make a big difference. I guess one question that I didn't ask that I want to ask now is like, what do you think the importance of research is within a system like the VA? The VA is, is a healthcare organization for veterans and it's the largest healthcare organization in the United States. You know, what role does research play in that? Well, I think research plays a big role in the interactions that we have with our veterans, with um, the clinical partners in driving what areas need researching. So for example, when COVID-19 pandemic occurred, we were listening to clinical partners and there were different divisions within Office of Research and Development that immediately started evaluating the healthcare system, how it could respond, what were some of the concerns, how would you make the hospital safe when patients come in? These are things that we were ahead of the game when it came to being able to respond to those kinds of questions because we had a concerted effort and we were really concerned about veterans. So the other area was telemedicine, trying to figure out, okay, the, all of these veterans may not be able to come in for care, but they definitely need monitoring. So how do we go about doing this? And VA has always been ahead in terms of telemedicine services that it provides for vision care also. Uh, and uh, thanks to the efforts of lots of people, including Dr. Ma in Atlanta and just a whole host of people that have implemented being able to diagnose through telemedicine. And so looking at the value of that now moving forward and looking at what, what are some of the barriers that people may encounter when they're getting care? What are some things, how comfortable are they with that type of care and so there are so many questions that are relevant for, for veterans, and it's such a big um, healthcare facility, as you mentioned, yeah. that yeah. it's important that there are very veteran-centric issues that are complicated that I don't think other funding agencies can address. DOD is the closest, but they're looking at more acute um, battle-forward types of issues that can occur. What do we do to mitigate 
the type of loss that can happen on the battlefield and how do we diagnose on the battlefield. But then the chronic related issues are something that only the VA can take care of or you know, diagnosing it, making sure that they're well taken care of and the, the interventions that we come up with or our investigators come up with are something that can be implemented of course. To, to help our veterans. Absolutely. Did I answer no. your question? No, that was great. That was uh, a great answer. Um, yeah, I think that's about it for this episode. We're really excited to have you on the podcast today and we really want to thank you for coming on. So yeah. thank you. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. This concludes today's Vets First podcast. For questions or comments relating to the program, please direct email correspondence to vetsfirstpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.